popular culture surrounds us. It's in the air. It's in your eyes. It's in your ears. You're getting some as you listen to this podcast right now for a fantastical truth, like every other podcast is itself an example of popular culture. Christians debate whether popular culture is mostly good, mostly bad, or else just kind of pointless and neutral. But why haven't we been asking the hidden big question? What is the point of popular culture in God's universe anyway? Welcome back to Fantastical Truth, the podcast from Lorehaven. Lorehaven.com finds the best Christian-made fantasy, science fiction, and other wonderful genres. We review those stories, and on this podcast, we find the truth, the beauty, goodness in those stories and apply these to the real world that Jesus Christ calls us to serve. And I am E. Stephen Burnett, not just the publisher of Lorehaven, but also the co-author of my first upcoming nonfiction book. And this is episode 31, What If Popular Culture Was Actually God's Idea All Along? The Pop Culture Parent, Part 1. And I am Zachary Russell, and if you're one of my kids listening, hi, Hungry, I'm Dad. That is a classic joke that never gets old. But we won't be talking so much about jokes as much as we did in the last episode about the Babylon Bee. We are going to be talking about Stephen's new book, The Pop Culture Parent. This book has been a long time coming. I uh, was able to write this uh, some years back, actually, with uh, Ted Turneau, who teaches worldview and apologetics in Europe, and Jared Moore, who is a pastor in Tennessee. Uh, we have been friends for a while and colleagues for almost as long, and we've been putting this book together, which now comes out from New Growth Press on September the 7th, 2020. This year, just a couple of weeks away as we record this, and right now you can actually pre-order that book from Amazon and get more information as well at newgrowthpress.com. See the show notes for those links to be sure. Stephen, I'm really looking forward to this book coming out and to our discussion today. You know, pop culture has been something that's infused my entire life from as far back as I can remember. There's a lot of memories I have as a kid of just embodying, like incarnating some of these characters. So one of my earliest birthday parties was a He-Man birthday party, where yes, I got dressed up in the you know, what is it, the suspenders hooked into underwear or whatever. You may know you're an 80s kid if. <laughs> yeah, and, you know, I saw Empire Strikes Back in the theaters. Uh, I saw one of the Christopher Reeves Superman movies in the theater and, and, and dressed up as Superman, again, with the, with the underwear on, outside of the pants, uh, that whole thing. Yeah, you don't have to do that anymore. They redid Superman, so yeah, he wears his underwear good. on the inside like a normal man now. <laughs> you, you kids have no idea how good you have it today. And then later on in college, when The Matrix Reloaded came out, I and some friends dressed up as Neo, Agent Smith, Trinity, and other characters when we went to the theater uh, on opening day for that. And uh, yeah, we were the only people dressed up as Matrix characters, and that was kind of awkward, but it was still fun. But yeah, pop culture has been a huge part of my life. I've, I've loved all the different fandoms I've dabbled in, and so it's going to be fun to talk about where do we find the intersection of pop culture and Christian living? Well, even as we record this, I am pumped for a big pop culture event, the DC Fandome Virtual Convention, where they will announce all the things and make every fan's dream come true. Hmm, wait a minute. You think there may be some idolatry creeping in here? Very likely, but also some examples of common grace as they manage to 
turn around the good ship DC and actually try to please everyone at once or as many people as possible with lots of big announcements. So it's funny that we're recording this on that very day and uh, some of my enthusiasm, I've had to be careful because after all, I'm thinking in the back of my head, wait a minute, the pop culture parent comes out. That's all I should talk about. But this is all the same topic, though, for me. It's all about fantastical storytelling mm -hmm. and popular culture and you know, whether it's made by Christians or not. It really is wonderful to be able to have my first book be nonfiction about fiction and especially a lot of fantastic fiction, which, of course, leads straight back to the fields that Lorehaven explores so well and this very podcast. So, Stephen, what is your origin story for how you came to love popular culture? Well, I grew up homeschooled, uh, as you know. Uh, that's a that's a difference between us, and and actually, it uh, doesn't affect me <laughs> today nearly as much as I thought it would somehow. But it does give me a unique advantage on things. Uh, like many other homeschoolers, I would say, uh, even in the best of circumstances, um, I grew up with just the assumption that I would spend the rest of my life learning. Uh, but I also grew up loving stories, especially the, the fantastical ones, as we've talked about in previous episodes. Uh, my first popular culture uh, exposures included a lot of Christian-made fantasy stories, and I've mentioned Adventures in Odyssey, obviously the Chronicles of Narnia series. Uh, there was an anime series called Superbook made by uh, some Christians in conjunction with uh, a Japanese studio. Uh, also got some Disney cartoons, of course, and beyond, lots of Christian-made popular culture. But then, you know, late, a little bit later in life, I'd say starting about age 10, you know, we, we got the cable TV and we started watching old classic shows and I, I got exposed to some of at least the popular culture of yore. And then as time went on, uh, my folks uh, started appreciating and enjoying more, uh, you know, more recently made popular culture as well. What also happened to me, though, was because I was exposed to so much Christian made popular culture, I got to know early on how Christians were thinking about these things. Uh, in particular, we had a Christian book uh, released in the 1980s. Speaking of He-Man, he was on the cover of this book. It was called Turmoil in the Toy Box and was written by a mm. chap with one of the best marketing names ever, Phil Phillips. I think literally <laughs> that is Kermit the Frog's alter ego in The Muppets Take Manhattan when he's trying to recover from amnesia and he joins a marketing team. He gives himself that name. <laughs> so, and by coincidence, this, this book explored a lot of other 80s uh, popular culture, Rainbow Bright, the original My Little Pony, lots of Star Wars, Barbie, G.I. Joe, and its posture is definitely cautionary. It said, is this really stuff you want your kids to play with because of all the associated violence and occult symbolism and some of the new age beliefs, uh, the force in Star Wars and horned creatures in My Little Pony and Rainbow Bright with all of her new age rainbow stuff. See, back in the old days, the rainbow was associated with the new age movement, TM as opposed to another false religious movement today. So that exposure to that form of Christian popular culture got me wondering early on, well, how should Christians think about this stuff? Is it hazardous? If so, why? And how could someone who would be under threat from that maybe mature such that they could write a book exploring all of these uh, forms of popular culture to help teach others? Like, how do you get from point A, concerned about it, to point B, powerful, more spiritually mature in some way, and then even able to help others. Uh, my wife and I now are facing more of these questions directly because of foster parenting. And of course, the, the issue of popular culture and its threats and benefits is, is at the back of anything that we do here at Fantastical Truth, exploring these kinds of stories for God's glory. You may have similar questions. Uh, isn't it simply uh, 
optional? Um, couldn't you use uh, popular culture as some kind of teaching tool? Don't you have more important things to learn or to teach your children if you're a parent? Or don't you have more important things to learn yourself? If you're listening to this podcast, you're probably not a person who's going to be uncertain about whether fiction is all that great. So we'll assume that you will, but this issue still is paramount to understanding the why, even if you already agree with us. Shouldn't you, though? Some people may come along and say, well, why, why would you spend all that time watching TV or playing that game or browsing that website? Shouldn't we be focusing on nonfiction or apologetics or biblical worldview? Uh, shouldn't you be preparing your kids for a life in a world that hates Jesus or their career readiness? Maybe you don't think popular culture is evil, of course, uh, at least not the stuff that you like. There's almost always a, a rationale to, to justify that. And we do have good Christian resources to review movies and TV and games and books and all of that, including, I would say, Lorehaven Magazine with its focus on the Christian-made fantastical genre stories. So maybe we do realize that popular culture has its uses. But deep down, and here's what we'll explore today, isn't it pointless? Before we add in the Christian stuff, isn't popular culture kind of pointless, kind of neutral? Could we do without it? Like maybe even an eternity? Isn't it just going to kind of go away along with other vapid stuff, a meaningless chasing after the wind? Or is there a deeper purpose to popular culture? And that's what we will explore after this word from our sponsor. Our sponsor for today's episode is a fantasy story for middle grade readers from Monster Ivy Publishing. They say that this story is, quote, for fans of Doctor Who and the darkly whimsical, end quote. Yes, sold me already, despite the fact that I'm past the middle grade. This is the title, makes me chuckle, Legend of the Storm Sneezer, like <laughs> at you. This story comes from author Christiana Seferlia. Here's what lies within. Quote, 13-year-old Rose Schuyler sneezed a magical storm cloud at birth, and it's followed her around ever since. But when storming causes too many disasters, Rose is taken to an asylum for unstable magic and a haunted forest whose trees have turned to stone. Guided by time-traveling letters, Rose teams up with her future selves and her maybe imaginary best friend to save her storm cloud and solve the mystery of the specters and the stone trees. But will they find what killed the ghosts before what killed the ghosts finds them? End quote. I love that description. I want to get some middle grade children around here just so I can give this book to them. But in the meantime, I may just need to enjoy it myself. We're going to print all the links and the great cover for this novel in the show notes, as well as the link to the author, the Amazon page, all of that stuff that you need in order to obtain this story. Thank you very much for this sponsorship and hope that you will enjoy Legend of the Storm Sneezer. Okay, well, back to our main topic. How do Christians in general respond to popular culture? Well, Stephen, I think the easiest and most obvious way that we respond is by creating our own subculture. And if you've been with the podcast a while, you know that I did not grow up in the Christian subculture. Uh, I, I grew up going to church, but I just didn't really hear about a lot of this kind of Christian-made uh, cultural stuff. Last episode with Frank Fleming from the Babylon Bee, we talked about you know how there's just so many great jokes about the Christian subculture, but probably the best one, this is a recent article, says, believer who didn't grow up in Christian culture knows nothing about Christianity except what's in the Bible. 
they have this guy, this fictional guy in the article saying, well, what's DC talk? Is that a Washington DC talk radio station? Like, I feel so lost. I wish there was a book of useful Christian knowledge. And <laughs> what is Carmen? <laughs> so, you know, I, I started to kind of learn a little bit about this later in college. So, you know, you and I have had a little bit opposite experiences, Stephen, which is fun. I think in terms of popular culture, like the, the culture that most everyone else is aware of, I think there's a few different postures that we tend to have in the church, and it kind of reflects how my pastor says churches respond to a city, like the culture of the city that they live in. So this is taken from Pastor Matt Carter's book. He outlines kind of four different ways that we respond, and one is to be a church in the city, to be a church against the city, to be a church of the city, or to be a church for the city. And those are pretty self-explanatory, but basically you can be a church that's just in the city. It's just there, but no one really notices or cares about you. You don't really notice or care about anyone else. You can be a church that's against the city that just takes all your time and energy to oppose everything that the non-Christians around you are doing. Or to kind of flip that around, you can be a church that's of the city. You can be the type of Christian that just adapts every single thing there is about popular culture and including mindsets and philosophies and ideas and values. Or you can be a church that's for the city, that maintains your unique Christian identity, but seeks the good of the city you live in. And there's obviously a lot of biblical precedent for that. So Stephen, I, I feel like these kind of postures uh, that Matt Carter talks about are, are very similar to how we respond to popular culture. Absolutely. I think local churches, of course, being made up of people who have different uh, reactions to the Christian subcultures or popular cultures that they knew about as they grew up, uh, they're going to then grow up and either continue those beliefs or try to find the good in them and throw out the rest. Or particularly if there's some kind of personal trauma or conflict going on, people will react or even overreact and throw out everything they grew up with and decide, okay, I'm going to go full on against the culture or go full on for the culture. Either way, uh, for an individual or a family, a lot of that is being based not so much on what scripture says and how we understand popular culture and the church's role in it and our role in it as God-worshipping ambassadors. We're basing our response then on our personal history. Some young Christians, for example, as we point out in the book, uh, they will react to maybe their parents were way too lenient with popular culture. And maybe their parents had that view of, eh, it's just neutral. It's just a movie. It's just a story. Uh, effectively, anything goes. And so the young Christian may go, well, anything does not go. Popular culture is really terrible and these bad things happen to me. So I'm going to be more cautious about it. Others, of course, famously, and perhaps uh, this is the majority case now as we're speaking uh, in this generation, others are raised in a, in a stricter Christian home. Their parents or the teachers, youth pastors, whatever, uh, were very conscious about popular culture. They had a posture of suspicion. And so the young Christian may become more open to popular culture. Uh, they may be vulnerable to affirming all the goodness in popular culture. And then say when Netflix puts out a pervy poster, they're not as eager to jump on that as a negative example from popular culture. I think that either way, we should not be letting our views be based on our reactions or our personal experiences. That is a very flawed way to look at the world through the lens of what we believe. Uh, as we discussed actually with Sean Smucker a couple of episodes ago, our memories growing up or even our, our church memories can be very selective, can even become more and more flawed 
over time. Our life experience is not the best construct through which uh, to look at the world. Our views on anything, including culture and including popular culture, must be shaped foremost by God's holy word. And that's what I was really happy I got to write about this topic with Ted and Jared in the Pop Culture Parent, uh, because we all had that same view. We want to seek and define these things according to the Bible. We may come across as strict that way, but as I've said in previous episodes, like I, I don't want to understand something as, oh, it's, it's just neutral. Like, no, I don't want to stop there. I want to know what does God's word say about this? What is the proper use and enjoyment and handling of this thing, whether it is marriage or political power or family or culture? All of those things I want to know. Why did God give this? Why do we even have it? Is it a sin? Is it automatically a sin? If it is, why keep using it now? That mission is futile. I would prefer to throw it out and focus on the things that really matter for eternity. That means we need to ask about the origin of popular culture. If someone has taken marriage and said, oh, marriage is just neutral or even marriage is bad for society, I can't just say, oh, no, it's, it's okay. It's just neutral. I, I think it's all right. I need to go back to the scripture, even back to Genesis and ask, why did God give this gift? In the case of marriage, there are some very specific texts affirmed even by Jesus. And we find the same thing for the idea of humans making culture. We have to kind of ask ourselves, what if popular culture was actually God's idea all along? And this is an important thing to think about, Stephen, because we too often think, oh, maybe pop culture is just kind of an accident. Maybe all these fandoms are just a huge distraction and we should just get away from all of that, get into our little hermit communities or whatever. We'll talk about that, but let's, let's talk about a little bit bigger question here. How do we even define the term popular culture? What does that even mean? We can't skip to the whole, uh, well, we don't want to get into our, our, our hermitages and we don't want to be oversheltered because then what I actually see too happen is people decide, oh, popular culture is a means to evangelism. We can use popular culture and find the redeemer figure or the social justice messages or the beauty, the beautiful artistry of a streaming drama or an independent film or a folk song or a meme or something. We have to skip past all of those responses. Uh, getting away from the reaction basis and then asking what does culture even mean is it in the bible and if so why what is the purpose of it and in the book uh, we actually start by not defining popular culture but defining that noun in that phrase culture and we use a quote from tim keller who says quote culture is the shared beliefs and values the shared conventions and social practices of a subgroup or an entire society in which we are taking all the raw materials that is of creation everything in life and rearranging it in order to express meaning, in order to express what we think is the good, the true, the real, and the important, end quote. From there in the book, uh, we ourselves define popular culture like this. So this is the three author team, Ted, Jared, and me saying, quote, popular culture is a subsection of culture. As we use the term, it is a type of artistic expression. Art is the part of culture humans most directly use to engage with questions of meaning. When we think of art, we usually imagine symphony halls or museums. These kinds of spaces can be called elite culture. Popular culture is simply art that occupies common spaces, such as streaming television, musical artists and bands, the internet, and comic book stores. These things give us art with easy access, expressions of the human heart that everyone can reach. A little later we say, that's a solid sociological definition, 
However, we also need to show how culture, especially popular culture, fits into gospel history. For Christian parents, we must see how these stories, songs, images, and games are not only things humans made up, they are also a gift God has given us. He wants us to make and enjoy culture. Making these things is an essential part of being human, part of God's will for us on earth, end quote. All that sounds very positive about popular culture, and it is, and we have to go there, but that also means that we have to explore what has sin done to popular culture, because sin has corrupted people, and that extends to the things we make. So make sure to grab the second episode of this two-part series of Fantastical Truth about popular culture, and we will explore the sin and redemption in human hearts and popular culture. First, though, we have to pinpoint the origins of culture and popular culture, which requires a brief tour through the Bible. We will cover not just God's redemption of people, but the way that God will be redeeming our cultural calling. I like where you're going with this, Stephen, because I sort of adopted the view that popular culture is only as good as we can use it for ministry purposes. You know, so this is like the pastor that finds a movie clip that he wants to preach a sermon on. Now he just has to find a Bible passage. You know, this is another Babylon B joke here. And that's sort of the approach I've taken for a long time that, well, I love popular culture, but I love the Bible more. That's a lot more important. So popular culture just kind of is a means to an end. But I think you and your co-authors have a very different view, or I should say just a more thorough view of culture itself. So why don't you tell us about that and how does that emerge from right in the beginning of the Bible? Absolutely. Uh, The first point in this little tour is that in Genesis, God commands us to make and enjoy culture. Again, in Genesis, part of God's command to people that he has created is to make and enjoy culture, and I would add, for his glory. This is not an accident. It's not something neutral. It's not something the humans made up. It is a direct idea that God has given us, and it's fleshed out by asking a famous question that Christians have asked throughout church history. What is the chief end of man? What is the highest purpose of a person? And I think sometimes Christians, like you said, Zach, will suspect that our our chief end, the highest thing that we're called to is ministry, whether it's professional ministry or church work. I think even among younger Christians who are more skeptical of organized religion may still have that thing in the back of their head. They think their chief end is to do uh, acts of social justice or raising awareness or more traditionally participating in church, Sunday school, giving to missionaries, having people over to your home, witnessing, of course. All of that, I think, falls under the great commission that Jesus gave his apostles before he left earth. And nothing here that I'm saying is to minimize the import of that command that Jesus gave. Let's never, ever minimize the great commission or that call to explicitly, overtly proclaim Christ as we proclaim his law and the need for repentance to our friends and family, anyone we encounter in our lives. That is super important. But that is not, I would say, not our chief end. And I can answer that pretty easily by saying that if it's our chief end, we would be doing that for all eternity. And while we will be, we will be teaching each other these things for eternity, I think the Great Commission has more of a, a natural uh, fulfillment at Christ's return. You lock in, at least at first, the amount of people who are going into heaven or the new heavens and new earth, and we will no longer be doing witnessing. Instead, we will be worshiping God forever, reflecting his image back to him and magnifying his name and participating in the way that God is spreading his glory 
throughout all the earth as the waters cover the seas and Zach, as you and I like to speculate, even the universe. This reflects the first direct command that God gave to people long before the Great Commission, thousands of years before in Genesis 1, 27 through 28. And we've alluded to this on the podcast before, quote, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them, and God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. End quote. Again, that's Genesis 1, 27 through 28. Notice in this passage, God says that we should multiply and subdue, that is, subdue the earth. And this may sound kind of harsh. Are we dominating the world in a bad way, just using up stuff for our own purposes? No, this is a royal calling that God gives us. It is his idea. He wants his people to nurture, cultivate, and develop the earth. We are taking God's things, gifts from God, and we are using God's creations to make things on our own to reflect God's glory back to him. We are showing God, this is what you look like. May your name be magnified. May your glory be over everything. We live in service to you and we are perfectly happy doing so. These are also two halves of the same command, which I, I loved exploring as part of this book about pop culture and parenting. God says at once to have kids and make stuff, have children, start families and make culture. Theologians call this uh, making culture part, the cultural mandate. And if you're a theology fan, you can look that up. We have got to have an understanding of that cultural mandate to make sense of the Great Commission. By the way, the cultural mandate makes no sense now without the Great Commission, because we can't just make stuff and have families without being aware of sin's corruption. But the Great Commission doesn't make a lot of sense without the cultural mandate either. Both commands shape each other because when we're going out into the world to witness and start churches and make disciples and teach disciples all of our lives, we do so in the context of people making culture, people making works of culture, whether it's sermons or building churches, creating hymns, all of that stuff is culture making in a limited way in the church but it also affects the, the broader culture that people are making in all spaces, not just the church. Uh, this means that Christians don't just use popular culture. We don't just get a scene from a movie or a picture of a superhero dying to save the world with his arms outstretched like he's on a cross. Uh, it's not just about John 3.16. John 3.16 definitely encompasses the gospel, but our gospel, the uh, God's plan to redeem the world, is not just limited to that. We don't just get people saved. We make disciples for life. And that is always in that shared context of our humanity and humanity. Each human has been called to make culture. The point of getting saved is to recover that original mission, but you cannot recover that original mission of making stuff to glorify God forever. I think without becoming in right relationship with God, that relationship is broken. We're dead in sins, repent, follow Jesus, live in the hope of eternal life, and then start now making popular culture, making culture, whatever that is, in order to glorify God. You know, Stephen, before I went on my first overseas mission trip in college, there was this great quote by John Piper I read, a very famous quote where he says, simply, missions exist because worship does not. Mm. You know, the point of missions is to bring more worship to God. And, and this was something that really grounded me when I would I would meet with people, I would share the gospel, invite them to, you know, make a decision. 
about it is that um, I, I wasn't there to sort of pad my numbers as a missionary. I, I wasn't there to seek a certain kind of success in an earthly sense. I was there to call people to worship God through his son, Jesus. And I, I, I like your perspective that the point of our existence is not simply evangelism missions. That's serving an end. And, and even the culture that we create, that is serving an end to bring more worship and glory to God. So I appreciate your emphasis on pointing everything we do towards God, but also enjoying the things he's given us to do along the way. Just like it's okay to enjoy worship, it's okay to have a great experience in creating culture. So, but what about popular culture, Stephen? Because now we're getting into, uh, you know, a little bit, I guess, murkier territory. We're talking about culture that's created not by the church necessarily, maybe by some Christians, but, uh, you know, a mixture of people, a mixture of belief systems and, and values. So tell me about that. Exactly. Well, you're not just talking, too, about uh, popular culture that's made, uh, that's shared out there in the common spaces of the world. But generally, especially now, you're talking about artworks, uh, cultural works that are being distributed by means of things like TVs or phones, internet websites, uh, games from your uh, console gaming system or your smartphone, uh, as well as uh, the old ways like books and music. Like All of those things are distributed by technology, a lot of which we did not even have 100 years ago. And the Bible doesn't talk about those specific technologies and whether or not they, for example, do something bad to culture. Culture is okay, we might suspect, but if you put it on a, a delivery device uh, like a, a CD or a disc of some kind and then spread that, like so, so we, we maybe assume that something goes wrong there in that transmission. However, Scripture does implicitly hint at the creation of popular culture because even right there in Genesis, God is endorsing the stewarding of Earth's resources. And implicitly, he is suggesting that people are going to go out and do things like science and technology. We are using this cultural good, of course, over the podcast to communicate now. Scripture also endorses the, uh, the creating of stories and poems that are popular. Uh, the Bible itself, of course, uses those genres, and it's an implicit uh, commendation of those things as a great good. Popular culture right now is just what happens when you combine those two, the science technology and the stories and artwork. You put them together and you get popular culture as we understand it now, especially with the mass media devices. And by the way, I think we would have gotten to this point even in a world without sin. We definitely would have gotten there without all of the uh, uh, the habit-forming uh, problems with our apps uh, you know, that use some even uh, some psychological techniques to keep us coming back, uh, or even some of the nastier stuff, like you know, the stories, the really bad stuff uh, that pulls the idols out of our own hearts. You know, we we wouldn't have had to deal with that if Adam and Eve had never sinned, but I think we would have gotten to the point of making popular culture. And we may explore that a little bit more in the part two. So Stephen, the question that comes to my mind is, can we glorify God without making culture? Is it enough to just have worship services forever? That's kind of like the elementary view of heaven is just singing and singing and singing forever. Why even have culture? Like what, what did God have in mind with that? Well, even singing is a particular kind of culture creation. It's just limited to songs and in a particular space, uh, sacred songs in a sacred space. Uh, I think some younger Christians especially kind of turn their noses up at that, and I don't think we should. But I also think that we needn't, as Christians, feel constrained by that particular cultural expression. That kind of training to make things and participate in a great good, like singing wonderful songs in a church service, 
should not stay there. Uh, we need to understand that that is almost like the school. We are training to make these things to glorify God. And then as Christians, we take that and we go out into the world and we see how other people are also bringing glory to God, even if they don't want to, uh, through the things that they make. Culture making glorifies God and reflects his image one way or another, uh, whether it's uh, apart from our will or even better with our will is then we are willing participants in the point of making these things in the first place. It's not just singing. It's not just preaching, fellowship, all that stuff that Christians know are good. Uh, it's not just those things that glorify God, but even things like making a website or making a song that might not, may not even mention God or the gospel or making a movie about the human condition, things like that also glorify God and reflect his image by reflecting humanity. And of course, this may sound kind of earthly. Don't we glorify God by doing these things like scripture memory or Bible reading or giving to missions like you mentioned earlier? Isn't uh, missions kind of its own purpose, the purpose of more missions? You get someone saved and then they need to go out and get someone else saved. Yes, please go out and get someone saved. I and mean, knowing that it's God who's working in us, that we only get to participate in this mission for his glory. And, and it's, a, it's something that we should be thrilled to participate in while giving full credit to God. Uh, but before we speak of, of sin interfering uh, with our culture making, like, no, we, we should not be suggesting that only these spiritual ways are the ways that we glorify God. The Old and New Testaments say otherwise. God wants us to receive his gifts, including the gift of making things using his universe, and practice those with gratitude. That's bringing glory to his name. And one of my favorite passages about that is actually in 1 Timothy 4. And I'll quote verses 4 through 5 here. Uh, the Apostle Paul is warning about people who will deny the goodness of God's gifts, such as marriage and food. The Apostle Paul says to Timothy, quote, for everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer, end quote. And to clarify, I'm not saying that oh, that video game or that uh, website you really love, like that's actually made by God. No, but it was made by people who one way or another are enjoying a gift that God has made, the gift of imagination and technology and the gift of making culture. I group that as a gift that God has made, a, a thing created by God, and we should not reject it. We should receive it with thanksgiving because we know that it is made holy by those spiritual tasks, Bible reading, the word of God, and prayer. Paul says this after warning that, in fact, it's the false teachers who reject uh, these mm. good gifts, these things created by God. Paul goes pretty far. He even says that these folks have the teachings of demons and they lie and they have seared consciences. This is strong stuff. What is it specifically that they're forbidding? Well, they're not talking about games and songs here, but they're saying that something like marriage is bad and, and food isn't so great. You know, maybe there's some Gnostic thing going on here. Some people who are acting like the material universe is inferior and that we should only be concerned with the unseen spiritual uh, uh, heavenly platonic ideals out there somewhere. What's the connection, though? Both marriage and food are good gifts of God. In fact, they are institutions of culture, going back there to the cultural mandate. Get married, start families, make stuff. The connection seems pretty clear here. Families and enjoyment of food are good things. It's not spiritual to break up the family. Zach, you've probably heard people who are like, the church is too concerned with marriage and children. And maybe in some places, but it's a little bit silly to critique that very niche problem when the far greater problem is around us of, of denying the goodness of these things. 
It's not spiritual to deny these good gifts, but there is a catch. And I think some Christian attempts to engage popular culture may skip over this part. You don't just go out to that movie or bring it into your home or play that smartphone game or any of those things without thanksgiving. Those things are not automatically holy uh, just because people blessed with God's common grace have made them. We must receive these with thanksgiving, with God's word and prayer. In some ways, we can't get into here just because the constraints of time, the study of God's word and our prayerful posture in relation to him helps to make these things holy for us. And we'll talk about sin and the corruption and the threats in the next episode. But for now, I think it's enough to say that Christians must engage with popular culture and teach their kids to do the same by praying and reading their Bibles. I mean, that's pretty simple. That's the basic stuff. We might be rolling our eyes. Oh, that old chestnut again. No, it's right here in God's word. Where else are we going to go? That's the only way that we can truly begin to enjoy these gifts with thanksgiving. Mm -hmm. And wouldn't you rather be thankful enjoying these gifts rather than fearful or feeling like you have to accept it all or else you'll be left out and you won't be participating in the culture. I, I really emphasize that spirit of gratitude when it comes to stories, whether they're made by God's people or, or made by people who are not necessarily God's people. Uh, it's also a gift to, uh, that the original calling that God has given us to image God or reflect God back to him by being creative. And as I've said, that, that reflects in how we create new families and create food using recipes and our traditions that we pass down. We can get creative with God's stuff for his glory and give these things creative names. And just like Adam named the creatures in the garden. And real quick to Zach, it bears repeating that we make culture or popular culture, not just as a response to sin, but in that gratitude basis, that response to God's good creation. We see what he's made. We read about why he's made it in his word. We pray back to him, God, thank you for making these things. We even pray before meals in a lot of Christian traditions. And that's how we respond to God's creation. We, we take that stuff and we make things on our own as well. That's kind of a clash with the way that some Christians, even when they're trying to justify popular culture, they'll say, well, it's useful. Uh, you actually alluded to that earlier. Mm -hmm. well, I think uh, if you're a preacher of a particular bent or a particular size church or something, you may say, well, I'm going to when I watch the movie and find the Christ figure or find the social justice or find the moral point I want to make, draw the allegory and then um, get a Bible verse in there and ta-da, sermon. Popular culture then is made into a tool. I think actually back when some Bible movies came out, uh, some pundits on the internet said, well, uh, I don't know if this is such a great movie, but maybe it'll be useful for evangelism. We're going out to search for things useful instead of honor and adventure and for a while, even Christians who want to understand a good purpose of popular culture will say, okay, this is useful if it teaches morals or educates the kids or it's some way for me to take my mind off the stress of the day. Or, of course, it preaches the gospel. You know, the, the, the canard that uh, a movie is now Christian if you put a altar call in there and some character gets saved. It's kind of cliche, but it's still around. Popular culture, I would say, is still legitimate, even if it doesn't directly do that stuff. You don't have to excuse it by uh, saying that it has to teach something necessarily. Of course, plenty of secular popular culture now actually seems to be going in that direction. Like, what is the point of the story if it doesn't uh, do something good for the world yeah, or raise awareness? <laughs> yeah, it has to, has to have a message, you know, a hashtag activism associated with it. <laughs> Whereas I think more Christians are moving away from that. 
again, of course, we, we can't extol popular culture without dealing with sin. Uh, some act as if popular culture is a great good. We can just receive it wholesale and whether or not we feel particularly grateful to God or whether or not we're uh, receiving it you know, through the word and through prayer, popular culture is not a uniform good, not any more than we are. Uh, even just this week, Zach, we've all seen it. That gross poster oh, yeah. for the Netflix show, um, it, yeah. it, it is repulsive, not just the poster, but the whole premise of the thing. Oh, it's French. Oh, it's actually made to show how bad it is to exploit children. Like, no, you're exploiting children on the way to exploiting children. Nice right. dodge, but it's not going to fly. Netflix, though, they have great shows. I'm reluctantly considering whether or not to cancel because they still have some good stuff on there. But when the next moment they seem to be perving on children, I've got an issue and I'm not a boycott prone person. So mm. that calls for some very difficult, uh, very difficult uh, exploration of how sin has affected and infected our hearts and thereby uh, infected our popular culture and what it takes for Christians and particularly Christian parents to discern the times, to discern these works of culture, to figure out what their kids can handle at what point in their lives as they mature. And one of our favorite parts of the book is the five questions that we've come up with uh, to help Christians as individuals and as parents to discern any work of popular culture, uh, not just the good stuff, not just the bad stuff, but especially how does the gospel address and completely answer? How does Jesus fulfill the hopes that the story raises, the longings of the human heart that can be good, uh, but that idols cannot fulfill? Well, this has been some interesting stuff, Stephen. You know, something that came to mind when you read that verse from 1 Timothy 4 and the, the prior section about false teachers forbidding you know, just normal human activities is that I think we're all pretty aware of false teachers today who kind of over embrace popular culture or over embrace cultural values. But it's worth pointing out that false teachers also completely reject modern culture and, and popular culture, and, and they completely reject good gifts that God has given us. And so I, I think there's sort of a tension that comes into play you know, and that we can't just embrace everything on Netflix or whatever. And we can't just, shouldn't just watch it and, and without filters, like every single show, but we shouldn't necessarily just boycott everything either. I, I think with this particular issue you brought up on Netflix, look, Christians can have different responses to it and that's fine. That's not really the point of what we're talking about. But a, a practical thing came to mind, Stephen, you know, you mentioned about how with food and with other gifts God gives us to enjoy, that we're to receive them with thanksgiving in the word of God. So here's a thought. What if before every movie we watched, we said a prayer of thanks before we hit play? And what if after that movie, we opened our Bibles and just had a little Bible study? You know, what comes to mind as you watch this? Where does your heart feel troubled by something in this film? Or where do you feel encouraged by this story? And what's something that came to mind from scripture. Wouldn't that be an interesting practice if we started doing that? We do that sort of informally with our kids sometimes, but I just wonder what if we just made that a habit? That could be kind of cool. I think that's a great idea. And it's something I've thought about doing, especially now when, although I feel like I can do that informally, just as I go, it's probably very wise to do a formal practice like that. Otherwise you're not going to get to the point of being informal about it. Uh, you have to formally train to drive your car and consciously make those decisions before those habits, those patterns of thinking can settle in. And you can almost do it optimally by autopilot. 
you know, you're still paying attention to the lights and the road signs and the speed limits and all of those things, but it, it approaches more of the subconscious level. And particularly for Christian parents uh, who may be new to this kind of thinking about popular culture, absolutely uh, make it a structured exercise, depending on what your kids can handle. If your kids are a little bit younger, it may need to be informal. And, but as they get older, uh, you may need to make it more formal before it becomes informal again. Uh, it takes practice. It takes discipline, uh, just like any other study of God's word and application of the world to which Christ has called us to serve. Well, this has been a wonderful discussion, Stephen. And to you, our listener, we would love to hear your feedback about this or other episodes. You can email us at podcast at lorehaven.com. And we're going to do another regional shout out. We know that we have a number of listeners in Brazil. So if you are a listener in Brazil, please send us a message. We would love to hear from you. What something that you've taken away from this podcast will put you to the front of the line please send us your thoughts, podcast at lorehaven.com. Or if you're on lorehaven.com, you can just leave a comment on the webpage for this episode. Next on Fantastical Truth, now that we've talked about God's created purpose for human culture and popular culture and all the good ways that those gifts glorify God and help us to become more like him, we need to talk about the bad stuff. How has sin corrupted the human heart and thereby also corrupted the gifts that God has given us, including the gift of culture making? How does popular culture today reflect not just the bad, not just the good, but a terribly messy mix of all of those things? And what five practical questions can help us engage those works of popular culture for the glory of God, our good as we're becoming more like Jesus? And how can we use those questions to help train our kids to do the same thing? Zach, thank you very much for letting me rhapsodize about the topic of this book. And again, it's coming out from New Growth Press from authors Ted Turneau, Jared Moore, and myself on September 7th, 2020. You can pre-order that book now at the link you'll find in the show notes or just look for The Pop Culture Parent, Helping Kids Engage Their World for Christ in your browser or Amazon or other bookstore. Meanwhile, as you engage this work of popular culture, this very podcast, Fantastical Truth from Lorehaven, compare everything that we're saying to scripture, discern everything that we're saying about the cultural mandate, particularly if it's something you haven't heard before. It's not something we made up, but if it's new to you, just make sure that you're comparing that to the word of God, not to human traditions or something you've always believed, but always to God's word as we continue to seek and find fantastical truth.